Hi, it's Saturday. It's the Saturday show, and today we speak of death, a macabre subject, but one that was in the news and on the show and in the show in the past. So in 2019, I spoke with Anthony Ray Hinton, who was wrongfully convicted of the murder of two teenagers in Alabama in 1985, 30 years on death row. And I talked to him about his experience in prison and life afterwards. That's an interesting interview. Earlier this week, I talked about the circumstance in Alabama where that state was the first to use nitrogen hypoxia as a means of death. It's an interesting and pretty horrific situation. Doctors won't sign off on participating in the death penalty, nor will pharmacists. States can't quite get the ingredients they need in their death cocktail, so they have to get quote-unquote creative. As a means of abolishing the death penalty, I always thought that this was roundabout, Not straightforward, maybe that's a redundancy to roundabout, but also not the best tactic in actually abolishing the death penalty. If you want to be against the death penalty, which I am, um, mostly because of its misapplication, its proved misapplication over the years, if you want to be against the death penalty, be against the death penalty. And I suppose there's an argument that says, well, if you're against the death penalty by any means necessary to be against it, so you should pursue bureaucratic means of disallowing certain ingredients to be used in the death penalty. But then we have, as I reported on a couple days ago, the specter of people gasping for breath because they can't die easily. I suppose the horrors of someone gasping for breath, you could argue, do a lot to convince people that the death penalty is inhumane. I don't know. It seems to just visit inhumanity on the one person who was gasping horribly. I also will admit that I think I was wrong, that all the people who say I'm against the death penalty and what I'd like is for states to just be moral or strategic and say no more death penalty, but if I can't get that, I'm going to look at the states that use the death penalty, I'm going to focus in on the lethal injection parts, and I'm going to make that practically unavailable to the states. This will thwart their overall process. I never thought, I, Mike Pesca, didn't think that was the best way to go about it, From a, not even from a moral standpoint, just from an efficacy standpoint. Really, that's going to quash the death penalty, but it seems to have worked, or at least there's a correlation between that tactic and the death penalty being greatly diminished. But in any way, I do bring you one from the vaults and one from the week, both talking about death. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. In 1985, Anthony Ray Hinton was mowing his lawn. Two Alabama policemen rolled up on him, put him in handcuffs. What was I being arrested for? He asked. They wouldn't tell him. Finally, the answer came. Murder, kidnapping, etc. Anthony Ray Hinton provided an alibi. The alibi was correct. The arresting officers did not care. He was still charged with murder, 
The case went to trial. He was convicted. He was put on death row for 30 years. Eventually, after all those decades, the ballistics evidence that would have exonerated him originally was allowed to be introduced. It was heard by the Supreme Court. Anthony Ray Hinton was released from jail on Good Friday of 2015. He is now out with the paperback version of his New York Times bestseller, The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life, Freedom, and Justice. Anthony Ray Hinton, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Wow. To condense what you went through in those few sentences, I mean, it's more than just time. It's an unbelievable journey where actually you don't move much except in your mind. So my first question is, when did it begin to dawn on you that not only were you going to be unfairly treated by the criminal justice system, but that it really looked like there was going to be no way out? It really began on the way uh, to the police station. Uh, the detective, in no uncertainty, made it clear that they really didn't care whether I did it or not. They just needed someone to uh, be convicted for it so they can clean up the books. And I thought really and truthfully that once I got to the police station, uh, we would sit down and they would tell me what it was all about and talk, and I could explain to them where I was if I could remember. And they would check into it and say, okay, we made a mistake. Mr. Hinton, you're free to go. But it didn't happen that way. Uh, the moment they pulled up on in my mother's yard, they came uh, with handcuffs and guns and they came and got the man that they just decided that they was going to convict and put him on death row regardless of what I said or what I did and why I tried to talk to uh, They didn't care. And so at that point, I knew that I was in uh, deep trouble. Yeah, and you grew up in Alabama your whole life. You were 29. You must have known that not only was there plenty of racism, but that plenty of innocent people went to jail. Why did you believe for so long that it wouldn't happen to you? Well, to be honest with you, my mother always taught me to tell the truth, and and I hadn't had any problem with the uh, police department or the justice system in Alabama. Things that I did do, I was guilty of. I didn't try to uh, duck and dodge it. I pled guilty to writing a bad check, uh, stealing a car, but nothing this severe. And I, I, I truly believe that the police uh, main job was to find a real perpetrator uh, regardless of what the crime was, and I didn't think any different. When I learned and found out that they wanted someone for murder, I'm saying, you got the wrong guy, but they didn't care. And so that's is when I really began to understand that it wasn't about so much finding the right person. They just wanted to clear the books, and they could clear it with me. So when you go to prison, you don't talk for three years, your first three years in prison, yes. is that right? Absolutely. Was that a conscious choice, or did it just overcome you? I, I think it was a little of both. Uh, to be honest with you, all of my life, my mom had brought me up to believe in in law and order. My mother had believed and taught me that the police was your friend. And when I got convicted, I was mad with God more than anybody. When I got to death row and they put me in this five-by-seven cell, I sit on this bunk that was already too small for me, but I did say one thing, God don't live in my heart anymore. And for the next three years, I didn't say a word to anyone. Every time one of the God would ask me anything, I would just get a pen or a pencil and just write out my reply. I didn't talk to my mom. I didn't talk to my, my friend Lester. 
uh, when they would come see me, I would just shake my head at And my mom would ask me all the time, you're not feeling well? And i just say, mm-mm, and close my eyes. What made you finally speak? Approximately about one in the morning, I woke up to the sound of a grown man crying, a man that I had lived by for three years and never asked him his name or where he was from. But my mom truly had taught me compassion. She would tell me every day it looked like no matter what one does in life, they still deserve some compassion. They still need to know that somebody care about them and love them. And that compassion came out when I heard this man that I never spoke to cry. And I hollered out through the bars, hey, mister, there's something wrong. Do you need me to get the... Uh, the guards, and took this man uh, a few minutes to reply, and he finally said no. He said, I just got worried my mother passed. And I told him I was sorry to hear that, and I sit back down, got off the bars, sit back down, and I realized at that moment that my mother was still alive. I was alive, and I had something to be thankful for. And from that moment on, I decided at that moment that I was going to take my life back. I was going to live the best life that I could live until, I guess, they execute me. Now that you are an advocate for the falsely accused, do you look back on any of the people you are on death row with and try to question, oh, did they really des- did they really commit the crime? Oh, maybe they didn't commit the crime. Is that a mental process that you're engaged with now, given what you do? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, I could honestly say without a doubt, I believe that there was five people that was honestly innocent at the time that I left. Of those five, what happened to them? I would honestly say that at least four of them have already been executed. I, I wanted to ask you, is one of those people on death row who was executed, who you believe was innocent, was Donis Musgrove one of them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the reason that I asked about him specifically is that the prosecutor in your case, Bob McGregor, and the judge in your case was the same as Donis Musgrove had in his case. And I went and, and the prosecutor in your case, McGregor, who has since died, wrote a book called Whiskey Bent and Hellbound, No Holiday for Justice. And in it, I'll just let my listeners listen as he describes you. I don't know if this will make you uncomfortable, but just to give an idea of uh, how this prosecutor conducted himself, the chapter on you is called Evil Personified Anthony Ray Hinton. And he talks about you as being Anthony Ray Hinton, a.k.a. the cooler killer C-O-O-L-E-R, because uh, the the actual victims of that murder you didn't commit were in a freezer. They, they walked into a freezer and he said, speaking of rat bastards, one of the coldest executioners that I ever confronted in all my years as a prosecutor was Anthony Ray Hinton. Now, Musgrove's family also says that he was uh, unfairly and incorrectly convicted, but now he's dead and he's gone. So, you know, what happens? Af- what, can, what can we do after the fact? Is there any way to ever go back and see if that was a just conviction? Oh, uh, no. What well, see, what Bob McGregor don't tell in this book, Bob McGregor was known to have this stare at 
people when they was on the witness stand. And Bob McGregor met his match when he met me. I looked at Bob McGregor and I made Bob McGregor drop his head because we were staring at each other. And Bob McGregor took a profound dislike toward me. But Bob McGregor, what he don't tell, how racist he was. Bob McGregor was, to me, one of the most racist prosecutors. And I don't know how he was able to get to where he got. But even when I was convicted, I didn't hear him say it, but I was told that Bob McGregor said, we didn't get the right nigger today, but at least we got a nigger off the street. So let's, Bob McGregor need to be exposed for who he was and what he was. And people ask me every day, where is the person that prosecuted you? And I said it with no disrespect. I said, Bob McGregor is dead, and I truly believe he in hell. Yeah, and there are portions, I almost, after I read your book and have heard interviews with you, there are portions in his book. I mean, at one point, he describes something that went on in your trial when you claimed correctly that the only people with access to that gun that hadn't been fired in 25 years were you and your mom. And then he asked you, so you're saying your mom committed the murders? And then he said that you said she may have. Well, you know, Bob McGregor was a prosecutor that would say whatever he want to say. Bob McGregor would had his way in the courtroom and everybody uh, got back. And I, I, to be honest with you, I would question every uh, trial that Bob McGregor did. And what kind of prosecutor would say, regardless of what the court system say, if he ever is released, I'm going to buy me a brand new 38 and I'm going to be waiting on him and I'm going to gun him down. That's the profound hatred that he had for me because I stared him down. And I felt, to be honest with you, I felt sorry for him. He was a man that perhaps was never loved in his life. And as they would say, this was his uh, chance to show the world for not being the boy or the man that I got the girls or was not good in sports. So he went to school and became uh, a lawyer, and he became a DA, and he used his office for selfish and hateful reason. I'm not going to give Bob McGregor the satisfaction of saying anything nice about him because there was nothing nice about him. So since your release uh, on Good Friday four years ago, has it all been sunshine and walking in the rain? Has there been any difficulties in reacclimating to a world that must have been in many ways very new to you? Uh, it has been all sunshine. Uh, I won't lie. Only when there is execution, uh, my mind goes back to the 30 years that I was there. I know exactly what the condemned is going through. I know exactly what the prison is doing the week of the execution coming up. Every God is treating that human being like he's a human being. They're willing to go out and do whatever they can for you. These are the same people that treat you like you dirt until you get an execution. But the moment you get an execution, all of a sudden, if you need anything, just let us know. The warden allowed visitors to come that you couldn't see before you got an execution. For that particular night, they get ready to execute you. They want to send you off, as they say, with the best meal, whatever you want to eat, just let us know and we'll get it for you. 
treat you like a human being because they finna kill you. And yes, on the week of an execution, I go through hell all over again because I'm there. Regardless of what I try to do, you know, uh, a friend of mine that I got to know on Alabama death row named Christopher Brooks, I was over in Hawaii trying to just first vacation in 30 years. And I found myself up at 1 o'clock in the morning, and my friend woke up, and he said, what's wrong? I said, I just can't enjoy because I know Alabama's getting ready to kill a man. And so my mind was there, and although my body was in Hawaii, but my mind was in Alabama thinking about Christopher Brooks, questioning are they killing an innocent man tonight? What purpose is it? What does we receive from it? How is it that we can have such a death penalty? Are we any better than the person that did this? Because we sentenced them to die because we said they killed someone. And yet we turn around and kill them. Well, who should pay for his murder? Because murder is murder regardless of who do it. And so, yes, I have good days and bad days. And I truly have bad days on execution nights. In 2019, only five people have been executed. And the state leading the country, though, in execution is Alabama. Are you putting yourself through? I mean, what you do, your activism, is based on the thing that tortures you the most. Can you continue on? I have to. I, I have to continue on for one reason. I'm hoping that someday the people will realize that we don't need a death penalty. It serves no purpose, and it costs too much. It costs over $2 million to execute a person from the time they go to trial to the time they execute it. And I want to fight for those men that and women that sits on throughout this country innocent, but yet haven't been able to find a lawyer to uh, dig into their case. I want to fight because I once sit on death row for 30 years and I needed someone to fight for me. I want to continue to do it until we get the death penalty abolished because as long as I sit and breathe, just as they made a mistake, and that's what we want to call it, then why is it that we don't think any, any other innocent people is on death row? I truly believe, after all that been done to me on purpose, I truly believe that we are a better country than having a death penalty. I truly believe that. And so, until the day that I die, until the day that the death penalty is over with, I'm going to get up as long as I can get up. I'm going to talk as long as I can talk. I'm going to stand as long as I can stand and say what we are doing, morally, is wrong. Anthony Ray Hinton is the author of The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life, Freedom, and Justice. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. A critique is not a solution, and a protest is not a path forward. But we so often make the mistake. There is annoyance or anger at the status quo, 
sometimes among differing constituencies. So we tend to assume that there is agreement beyond the idea that things need to change. A simple example that comes to my mind pretty easily, media bias. Polls show people think there is media bias. Trust in media is at an all-time low. According to Pew and Gallup, Gallup finds 39% of no confidence in national news media at all. That's up from, or down from 27% in 2016. Pew finds that while 58% say they at least have some trust in the information that comes from national news organizations, in 2019, that number was 65%. So that's going down too. But here's the thing. If you had three people in a bar, two who don't trust the media and one who does, it's just as likely that the distrusters would have more in common with the media or with the people who trust the media than they'd have with each other. Because while there's a clear partisan bias to mistrust, and it's mostly conservative saying the media is too liberal, a third of those with a critique says the media is too conservative. So if you reform the media, the corrective would satisfy most complainers, but leave a third much worse off than before. This all brings me to soup and French protesters, though not French onion soup. It was tomato, I think. The protesters themselves were brought to soup. They brought it to the Louvre and attacked the Mona Lisa. These were protesters from Food Response, a part of a coalition of climate activists who threw soup at the painting of the stoic Italian countess. She did not break a smile or break her somewhat quixotic expression. She took it all in stride as the protesters yelled, what's more important, art or the right to a healthy, durable diet? It is such an apt comparison. I never realized it until soup was thrown at the Mona Lisa. I could ask them, hey, what's more important, your particular right arm or the entire climate? Come on, you call yourself a lefty, prove it. But most accounts of this protest, and to listen to the activists themselves, claimed common cause with another mass French protest that was stewing, though not literally in this case, stew. In southern France, farmers setting a truck of red peppers on fire, then flipping it. Tires set aflame, trash dumped outside government offices. The truckers massed outside of Paris were protesting, among other things, taxes and regulations. But some of these regulations were the green regulations, sustainability standards thrust on them by the EU. In other words, the exact opposite of what the climate activists want. So there is a shared discontent, vastly differing agendas. Which brings me to Israel. Perhaps you heard last week the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, was besieged by the families of the hostages being held by Hamas. Do something, they implored. Their ire was focused on the Netanyahu government. So it would be easy to assume or imply, as this BBC reporter does, that the families of the hostages oppose the aggressive military policy of Netanyahu, which he described this way. He is determined to push on with this offensive with the aim, in his words, of complete destruction of Hamas. Uh, but the families of the hostages and many Israelis, in fact, the majority of Israelis, according to opinion polls, feel that the priority needs to be the release of those hostages. 
Notice the contrast. Not a continued war, but the release of the hostages. The reporter doesn't lie. Returning hostages is the top priority, but not as opposed to defeating Hamas. The Israel Democracy Institute polled on that very finding. They asked each Israeli to rate from one to five, with five being very important, each of the goals of the war. Release the hostages, 93% gave it a five, said it was very important. Topple Hamas, 94% said very important. Though when asked to choose between those two, more said release or gain the release of the hostages. The Times of Israel reporter Sam Sokol spoke to some of the protesters who stormed the Knesset and asked them about their demands. They were livid that any humanitarian aid was getting into Gaza while their families were being held in Gaza. One protester told me he wants two, what he called two slightly contradictory things, which is one, cut off all humanitarian aid to Gaza, two, negotiate a hostage deal involving a secession of hostilities. So don't assume that within Israel, release the hostages means stop the war. Netanyahu is being criticized even by some family members of hostages as being too weak. Of course, many hostage families do think that he should call for a ceasefire for the return of their family members. And that is being discussed. And there are many others who, of course, want the hostages back, but they know it's going to be a long war. Those people don't show up as protesters on the news. They are picked up in polls where the efforts of the war are still much more popular than not. I think too often we mistake in those with whom we share a critique, we mistake that we must share a common worldview. And that is not always the case. Consensus on the path ahead so often does not correlate with a common discontent at the present. And that's it for the show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. They're the quaint mallards. You know why we call them that? I'm not going to tell you. One day I will. If you ask them, maybe they'll let you know. But I will talk to you on Monday. <laughs>